Office of American Absorption. So we need to be absorbed, do we? We're not American enough yet? Living on Summit Avenue in the city of Newark, in the state of New Jersey. I'm not American enough? Hi, this is Peter Sagal, normally the host of NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, here again with episode three of the official podcast for HBO's Plot Against America. And once again, I am joined by the executive producer and creator of the show, David Simon. Hello again, David. Thanks again. We are talking this week about part three of the plot against America. So this is your usual warning that if you like to actually see your TV without knowing what's going to happen, stop listening to this podcast, watch the episode, and come back to us. This episode, just to recap briefly, begins with a nightmare, and we then enter into a nightmarish version of American history in which Charles A. Lindbergh has won the presidency, and we now see what that is like for the Levin family of Newark, for Rabbi Bengelsdorf, who's now an official in the Lindbergh administration, and ultimately for the country. This is where the story of the show really veers from American history as it was lived. So it's worth it just to mention what happened. In real life, of course, FDR won the 1940 election. The year 1941 passed with isolationist sentiment continuing to hold the day in America, especially as Germany invaded Soviet Russia until finally everything changed with Pearl Harbor. Roth may have made up this election and the result, but he did not make up the nativist, anti-Semitic, xenophobic, isolationist strain in American thought at the time. Not at all. The German-American Bund and the America Firsters genuinely came to believe that Jewish Americans were one of the elements pushing America towards a war that we did not need. But, you know, it wasn't all racialist and it wasn't all unreasoned. There was a sense that Europe was perpetually at each other's throats, that the First World War had solved nothing, that we were in a new hemisphere and we could maybe fashion our own history independent of the rest of the world. There was a core logic to isolationism that isn't necessarily predisposed to anti-Semitism or fascism, but those were fellow travelers, anti-Semitism and fascism. And in now the version of America in which this TV show is set, Lindbergh is now president and, shall we say, activates all that latent stuff in the American character. And we see almost immediately that it's had an effect because a Jewish cemetery has been vandalized with swastikas and other slogans. And we see Herman and his friend Shepsi there trying to clean it off. And Shepsi is leaving. Herman is like, absolutely not. I am not letting them do this to me. It's my country too, and I'm going to stand up for it myself, which is a brave thing to do. It's where German Jewry found itself in 1932, 1931, 1933, 1934. It's exactly that moment. And you mean just this sense of like, yes, this Nazi regime in Germany has taken over, but it's my country. I'm not going to be driven out. I'm going to... They can't mean everything they say. Right. They have to see that we're Germans. Yeah. German Jews who had fought and who were veterans of World War I couldn't believe that they were not German, that they wouldn't be perceived for being the patriots they were. But they can inform you at the drop of a hat that you're mistaken. Seemingly civilized countries have competed with themselves and with each other for the the ability to... uh, uh, malign and misuse and exile their Jewish populations. And, and, and so there comes a moment where every Jew thinks, what am I? I believe I'm an American. But if you're Jewish, they say you always have one bag packed. 
that's not unique to Judaism. I mean, right. at any given moment, African-Americans are reminded that there are fellow citizens that think their status is somehow questionable, Latinos. That notion of the hierarchical American is one of the most dangerous and destructive things we have going. Speaking of hierarchies, there's a conversation in the cemetery how the mayor and the police commissioner came out in support, but that they were late. There's this sense, this is actually something that I think is very relevant to today, which is you realize how much you assume that the machinery of the state will protect you, right. at least here in America. Right. At the beginning of the episode, Herman seems to still believe, as frustrated as he is, that the authorities will be on their side. And institutional America will respond like institutional America is supposed to respond. Right. Everyone has the illusion of control. And at the point at which your democratic norms stop working, it is an illusion. It is an illusion. This is fragile stuff, democracy. My dad had something that he said every Passover, every Seder. He said, freedom can never be completely won, but it can be lost. That's the one-sheet tagline for Plot Against America. You should probably explain what a one-sheet tagline uh, is. It's the, the poster, the billboard. Bernie Simon is up there. That's his line. I, I copped it from my father. But what it says is that democracy, you know, Churchill, to quote a conservative Tory, he said, democracy is the worst form of government until you consider all the alternatives. That's pretty accurate, which is to say it's messy. It relies on consensus. It can never be like a laser the same way fascism can be. To be goal-oriented, you have to build consensus. It's a struggle. And it's a quotidian struggle. Every day you get up and you try to kill a couple snakes and push the string. And that is not the cleanest or easiest way to govern, but it is the only way to self-govern. So it never feels like it's working completely. It always feels like it has problems. The day never arrives where you say, well, this is the democracy we deserve. Right. It never comes. And every day you're going to feel the same way about it. There's no romantic notion of that. And there's no moment where you cross the goal line and think, well, that, you know, don't have to worry about this again. On the other hand, the moment you stop doing that yeah. and the moment you start convincing yourself that these institutions, your justice department, your courts, right. your education department, that they'll all do what they're supposed to do because they're charged with that. And you can stop engaging in the fight to make your government your government. That's when you lose it. Alvin goes off to war in this episode. Everything that happens during Alvin's sojourn in the Canadian Army is your creation for the TV show. Yeah. So why was it important to you to show what Alvin went through? I'll be honest. If we'd have had 10 more days of filming and $6 million more million in the budget, I might have followed him right up to the commando raid. Right. I might have actually filmed the sequence. Uh, as it was, I think it's probably a better notion that that happens off screen, the right. actual combat. But the idea that he represents at the point of conflict that we see him as a soldier preparing to do battle with fascism gives the character real resonance so that when he comes back and he is less than ennobled at all points, we nonetheless see him at the moment of his actual ambition with regard to, to being an honorable soldier in the fight. There's something about that that makes his journey feel much more real. It makes him getting off the train that much more heartbreaking when yeah. he comes back. And I feel like showing just enough of it so that you believe he was all in yeah. at one point, gives the character real resonance. It, it, it pays dividends as you go through the piece. There's a scene that begins, something we've seen before, his romance with a girl in a bar, they're going to go off to war, what the hell. But it leads to certainly my favorite scene in the episode, if not one in the whole series, in which Alvin and this woman have a conversation in bed. They don't seem so different. <laughs> <laughs> I mean to say, 
You believe in more or less the same stuff as anybody else. God and all that. I don't believe in God. Then why be Jewish? You make it sound like a choice. Isn't it, in a way? I believe in my father, who was a Jew. And in his father, a Jew. And his father and his father and all the way back to whatever the hell tribe was wandering around the desert when someone had the bright idea to trim off the end of his prick. <laughs> so it's about family? Yeah, it's more than that. I'm a Jew because I was born a Jew and this whole fucking world wishes I wasn't. They want us gone. All of us. And they drive themselves crazy because after all this time, they still can't get rid of us. That's it. Yeah, that's it. I think I was so grateful because I've never been able to be as articulate about it. Like, well, yes, I don't actually go to synagogue and I don't tend to believe in any of those things, but no, I am a Jew. If you were raised as a Catholic and then you lose your faith in the Catholic Church, you don't refer to yourself as a Catholic. You refer to yourself maybe as an ex-Catholic or maybe a cradle Catholic. But you're not Catholic anymore because you don't go to church, you don't take mass, you're not Catholic. It's, it's, only, it's a matter of theology. Yeah. And there is something about peoplehood that keeps Jews Jews. Yeah. Or it makes you feel guilty if you, yes. if you, know, you know, if 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 you're an apostate, you really feel not as if you've fallen ideologically away from the faith, but as if you've a severed, severed yourself from, yes. from a, my from a, grandparents and ancestors put up with everything they put up with. So well, that's I it. could like eat bacon. That's it. I don't believe in God. I don't keep kosher. I'm with Spinoza. I don't believe in chosenness. You know, right. I, I got off the chosenness trip as soon as I heard about it. <laughs> and I don't believe that any other Jew has to believe in anything to be called Jewish. After the Holocaust, a lot of Jews looking at assimilation and whether or not to identify as Jewish, they said, don't give Hitler any posthumous victories. Don't intermarry. Don't, you know. Keep the Jewish raise people Ju- alive. Raise, yeah. They, they tried to kill us. Raise your kids Jewish. Yeah. You know, be Jewish. And there's a bravado to that, but there's also something that if you're Jewish, you hear it and you go, okay, it's really hard to exist for any length of time. Certainly as you get further away from the Holocaust, it's hard to exist on a negative. It's hard to be like, I'm Jewish because the world is pissed off at me being Jewish. That can only carry you so far. At a certain point, there has to be some personal affirmation. And you can find those things and not be religious. I mean, you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's a whole liberation theology embedded in the Exodus the guts of the New Testament in terms of addressing your neighbor as yourself is, is in Isaiah. There's a lot of good righteousness. There's also a lot of misery and xenophobia in yeah. the Old Testament. There's, you know, it's a, it's a flawed book, but, um, <laughs> but an interesting one. We look forward to your adaptation. Yeah. My adaptation will only have the good parts and leave out the bad parts. <laughs> or maybe vice versa, yeah. actually, if I'm doing if I'm working for HBO. But, um, <laughs> but honestly, the examination of what it means to be a Jew, particularly a secular Jew, is something we've all wrestled with. And so I got to that scene, I was like, I'm going to try to say why I'm Jewish, me. I don't know if it would have landed with Roth. I think it might have. I mean, you know, from everything I've read of his work, I think it would have been close to the pocket of what he might have said if Alvin were challenged on why he was over there fighting. But yeah, I'm very proud of that scene. Let's follow Alvin. He goes through his training. He is sent on a mission that has to do with pulse navigation. That's a real thing? Yeah. It was critical to the Battle of Britain. It was very new. And pulse navigation later would come into actual use. Mm-hmm. So it's what our whole air traffic system functions on. So the British were experimenting with that. So were the Germans. And he's basically told part of the mission of the, of the raid on Norway is to try to grab the German equivalent of that stuff and bring it back. Right. This is all conjured by Ed Burns and myself. Right. And 
It will later be relevant. Yes, this will come we, up again, which is why I pay am attention. highlighting it now. Pay attention, viewers. Yes, pulse navigation, everybody. Yeah, by the way, my, one of my favorite lines in the whole thing is Alvin. He's brought in because he has an aptitude yes. for electronics. And they ask the two soldiers, the commanders, where they learned their, had their training. We're also working on an offshoot of radar technology, pulsed navigation. Can either of you make heads or tails of that schematic? You put an electric beam or... Uh, a beacon on a plane and it uh, sends pulses. Triangulate the pulses with ground units and you can locate planes. Is that correct? Quick studies, both of you. Can I ask where you acquired a healthy understanding of electronics? University of Warwick, sir. Or Simkowitz's garage, sir. <laughs> so like, we actually, like, we embedded this in such a playful way, but I love the British look on the guy's face when he says, Simkowitz's garage, <laughs> sir. And he just looks, at, he looks at him like, quite. <laughs> The actor, Anthony Boyle, who plays Alvin and delivers that scene so beautifully, is not Jewish. He's from Northern Ireland, so he had to learn a, a Jewish New Jersey accent, and he also had to learn some Yiddish, right? He got to the point where he showed up on set for one of the Friday night meals, and Aji Robertson, who plays young Philip, was asking for the pronunciation of a Hebrew word. And before I could get it out of my mouth, Anthony Boyle looked at him and said, it's Baruch, and, or whatever the word was. I can't quite remember. And I looked at him like, really? You know, He didn't break the accent until the rap party. I mean, he showed up at the rap party and began talking in his brogue, yeah. and the crew was falling out. They were like, <laughs> are you kidding? Because he, he came off in between takes. He didn't slip. He, he stayed in Jersey. Uh, he's a remarkable actor. I, I, I'm just going to say this. It has nothing to do with this, but it, nothing will ever come close in my esteem to you having Dominic West in The Wire, who is British, playing a Baltimore cop faking an English accent. Badly. Badly. Yeah. And it's it's like a double half reverse sop with camel. It's amazing <laughs> how he does that. Just wanted to say that. And, I, you know, I mean, thank God you have looping to back you up because it's a little bit scary. Yeah. It's a little bit scary. But, but the truth is, take the better actor. Yes. That's always the rule. Take the better actor. Yeah. And they'll figure it out. That's right. Let's leave Alvin in Europe heading off to his mission and we'll come home where things continue to get dark as Rabbi Bengelsdorf announces his new program with the extraordinarily creepy yet friendly name of Just Folks. Just Folks. Which is a program to invite Jewish youth to go to the heart of America. And when you look at somebody like that actually creating this program that will take Jewish children away from their families and condition them to be, quote, real Americans, unquote. Does he genuinely believe it's a good idea? I think he does. I think he has convinced himself that the more American in the classic middle American heartland, American Gothic, Norman Rockwell version of Americanism, the more Jews can apply themselves to that leitmotif and demonstrate that they are quintessentially American, the better off they will be. Of course, what's going on all around him that he's not attending to is the fact that this is landing on Jews who are not sitting on their porch speaking mm -hmm. Yiddish, who are not wearing 17th century frocks and payas. Yes. They're assimilating as fast as every other immigrant group assimilates, Right. maybe in some ways faster. They're not disadvantaged by the color of their skin. You know, it's like they got everything going for them and they're, and they're seizing it and they're becoming... You know, some of them are becoming Abe Steinem, some are becoming Herman Levins, but right. they, are, they are becoming Americans so fast it makes your head spin. 
And yet he has embraced this idea that there's some Americanism beyond that. Yeah. Like Moses, he's going to lead them to that. It's weirdly messianic, and it, it basically leads to a point of almost self-loathing. Right. Of, I'm going to shave so much more of this stuff off that pretty soon you won't be able to tell the Jews from the non-Jews. That's the melting pot to the point where you're actually yes. melting human beings down right. into nothingness. It, um, it, one of the things that's amazing to think about, especially when you're talking about Bengelsdorf and his motivation, is he may say to himself, well, this is a wonderful, benevolent, benign way to solve this problem. But what do you mean this problem? This problem. Why, exactly. why is there an assumption that there's a problem right. here? That simply buying into that, right. this idea that the Jews need to understand what America really is, right. is in and of itself a kind of horror. Yeah. Let's check in with Evelyn, who seems to be enjoying her new life as Rabbi Bengelsdorf's assistant, uh, heading up the New Jersey office of Just Folks. And I won't know if enjoying is the right word, but certainly experiencing the pleasure of being his uh, consort. You know, what those two actors gave us and what we had the opportunity to do was to graft in a genuinely affectionate love between the two. Yeah. There, there, there's a grounding in something quite genuine that the book never can give you because all that the Levin family experiences from externally, from yeah. what they're experiencing in terms of Evelyn's yeah. engagement with the rabbi is opportunism. It's yeah. political opportunism and, and, and opportunism on Evelyn's behalf because she's finally got her hooks into a, a man to marry and, yeah. and, and a macher at that. Yes. So it feels as if they're very shallow because their ambitions are so belligerent to the existence of the Levins and other people who are trying to get through this moment that it doesn't grant them any possibility that they might themselves be tragic. And the thing I think we were able to deliver on the part of a lot of these characters that are outside of young Philip's view in the book of his narration is they have interior lives and maybe they're a little more equivocal, maybe they're a little more human than Philip's version of them. And in some ways you're seeing the genuine affection that Evelyn has for this man and, and him for her juxtaposed against the politics and the damage done, which yeah. makes I think makes the characters a lot more interesting. Yeah, I think Rabbi Bengelsdorf's affection for Evelyn is genuine. It's not just a, an older man acquiring some attractive young eye candy. I think he's genuinely needy in a human way, and she fulfills that need. And I think Obviously, for her, a caring, fatherly guy who provides her position and, and that life. So we've talked about Rabbi Bengelsdorf's motivation for starting Just Folks. Evelyn seems to be going along with it. It gives her a place to go. It gives her work to do. It gives her a purpose. But I have to say, personally, that scene set in the Just Folks office where we enter and there are all these people who were distinctly not Jewish wandering around and, you know, with their papers and their folders and their typing and their typewriters and adding with their adding machines. And, and in a weird way, seeing Winona Ryder come out in the middle of it, this small, dark-haired person in the midst of these tall Aryans was equally spooky. It yeah. was like, who are these people? Right. Few and far between were the number of Jews that would take that civil service job. So she stands as in stark relief. Yeah. And, the, and look at all the people who would take these jobs and are just doing their jobs, you know? Right. There was something so creepy about the banality of that evil. The, 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 the bureaucracy. Just, the bureaucracy of it. Right. This machinery of picking well, up and children it, and moving them and away. And it begins with something that feels as if it could be benign. You're going to go learn how what it is to milk a cow. Right. You know, there's a little bit of that. Like, Sounds you know, pretty we, good. We've all had field trips to the farm. Yeah. So it begins with that. But, of course, 
It's a six-hour miniseries. Yes. But I had, you know, to have two actors who are playing all of their heart into the character, even though the characters on the page exist as antagonists to the Levin family in the book, by letting them breathe a little bit, John and Winona gave us the opportunity to really deepen the tragedy. There's that great scene which juxtaposes two things as they're about to enter into this fancy party. And they talk about the fact that Henry Ford will be there. It's juice. Everyone knows it. He does. And yet he will be entirely polite when you meet him. Do you know why? Because you have the president's ear. And the president is not, despite what others say, a Jew hater. So Mr. Ford will behave. And you see exactly what Bengelsdorf's position is. He's like, this is how I'm going to protect myself and presumably my people by having that close connection to power. And it's interesting that it's then followed up by his proposal, like in his power, in his moment of like, this is security. He's like, this is when I will now from that position of power. I'm delivering my people and I can deliver you. Exactly. Yeah. Herman's attitude toward all of this becomes very clear in a number of ways during the trip to Washington. And Morgan Spector, the actor who plays Herman, has thoughts on why just folks, the Lindbergh presidency and the anti-Semitism cropping up everywhere, are particularly hard to swallow for someone like Herman. Herman is, in some ways, I think a classic second-generation American. The social contract of America in the the 40s has worked for him. If you work hard and you're willing to sacrifice, that America will reward you and that you will you'll have a decent life. He's seen that promise fulfilled in his life and he has enormous faith in America and its institutions and its democracy as a result. He he's I think acutely aware of his Jewishness and and proud of it, but at the same time feels that that makes him no less American, feels very integrated into the broader social fabric of the country. Uh, and I think feels that that's generally the direction that the country is going, that more acceptance, more tolerance, and a continued sense of belonging are uh, his birthright as an, as an American, as a Jewish American. Let's go to D.C. I mean, I saw it as, I mean, obviously they've left Newark on a couple of occasions to go into the city, but they are leaving their world and they're going into Lindbergh's America for the first time. And, and, and it's represented by the capital city. It turns out that the world is actually turning as dark as they thought. I was just saying, Mr. Taylor, it is the damnedest thing what this country does to its great men. Well, thank goodness for Lindbergh. Compare Lincoln to Lindbergh. Something bothering you about what the lady just said? A loudmouth Jew. And you can just see Herman getting more belligerent. Every insult he gets, he reacts with more anger. In a weird way, this is the most, at least to me, the scariest part of the miniseries so far because there's been a lot of worry. There's been threats, but now the Levins are out in the world and there's very little to protect them. Get back to the hotel. They've been removed from their room. I mean, it's hard to talk about realism in a show that is based on alternative history. But do you think that America would get to that place so quickly after the election of a Lindbergh? Well, you got to remember, it's 1940, and America was actually at that place. There was hard redlining against Jews and hotels and country clubs yeah. and restaurants, and, and, and there was a real fundamental sense of there were Jewish places and Jewish spaces, and there were not. The same thing, obviously, for African Americans. It was yeah. a segregated society, and, and D.C. was a very segregated city. 
except, interestingly enough, for the federal land. We were very careful to show African-Americans moving around on the mall because it was federal U.S. park property. You could promenade anywhere around the monuments. It was was an artifice of an America that was promised but never delivered. I had no Um, idea that was the case. Oh, in the 40s, black families would go picnic in Haynes Point beside white families, and it was an integrated environment. It's fascinating what existed in the middle of a town that was incredibly Southern. Right. So we have to transport ourselves back to an America that really was drawing those lines and doing so legally. There was, you know, I don't want you here, and I'm the manager, and get out. Right. And that was perfectly legal. And so there were hotels. If you were Jewish, there were places you could stay. Yeah. And there was places you wouldn't dare stay. There were places you could make reservations to eat. And there were places you wouldn't dare. And then you graft on the idea of Lindbergh has now empowered right. people to act on their worst impulses. Yeah. I mean, there's Legal. actually a line in the miniseries where someone says, uh, th- now these people have permission. There's this sense, and again, there's some resonance, I think, in what's going on today, that there are a lot of people walking around with these feelings, thoughts, actions they want to take, but they can't because there's a sense of they're socially unacceptable. Right. Certain things you can't do anymore in polite society. You get a leader who starts doing them or saying them or giving his tacit permission to do it, and it's not like he's creating that impulse in everybody. It was already there. There's a moment where you decide that you can go to a Confederate statue with a tiki torch and start screaming, you will not replace us, and you're plausible. Right. You're politically plausible. And that that tone comes from the top. Yeah. It's interesting to think about these scenes in Washington with people walking by and saying these things about Lindbergh and Jews and encounter eventually in the cafeteria. There was an article in the Washington Post in mid-February about how there have been hundreds of incidents of bullying in schools with kids echoing the president's language. Yeah. We're going to send you back. We're going to build a wall, build a wall, build a wall. And it's not like these feelings were invented out of whole cloth. They were there. When all else is said and done, the pulpit of the presidency is essential in, yeah. in what tone you set and what is said and what is not said, Right. whether you're the president of some of the people or all of the people. We end with the restaurant where they run into a genuine bully anti-Semite and Herman stands up to him and that's when Mr. Taylor finally reveals his inherent decency. Do we have a problem? Winchell's a Jew paid for by the British. So if there ever was a loud mouth Jew... That is enough. It turns out he's a righteous Gentile to as, use the as phrase. Do, as, as do the people running the cafeteria. Yes. They have no patience for this. Roth was really smart about this in the novel, which in Roth's mind, this does not come down to it's the Jews against the Gentiles. That's not the point of the novel. Right. This is about those people who are willing to stand for the country, for the republic as it has to be. The republic, as I said, democracy is exhausting, but it can't endure in any cohesive way without a daily ration of tolerance that, that is doled out just to begin the day. So that, so that we basically can do our business as Americans. And the novel has faith in that, which is to say at critical moments when you think all hope is lost and Lindbergh's America is about to assert itself and every a tailor shows up or the people in the, in the cafeteria, they show up and they say, that's not right. And it happens again and again in the novel. There are moments where you expect the work, because the Levins are, are living in a prism of increasing totalitarianism and increasing tolerance for anti-Semitism, or intolerance, I should say. Um, Because that's what they're experiencing, 
you start to expect the worst from Americans who are Gentiles. Roth was careful to place the totems of real Americanism right where they needed to be in the book so that when you start thinking they're all Nazis and they're all... No, no, no. That's not the... You know, yeah. America's actually fighting for its soul. Right. And it is right now, too. It, the book's not about Lindbergh. The verdict on whether or not Lindbergh was a good guy or not or what damage he might have done if he was president is unimportant. What could have happened to the Jews in 1940 in America is unimportant. Whatever happened, happened. The book exists. The reason HBO spends the money to do it, the reason I've spent two years doing it is it's an allegory for now. Yeah. It's about tolerance. You know, the allegory is who are the vulnerable cohorts now? Who is being used as grist to deliver fear so that we can have the politics we're having now, so that people can take power and use politics? Which people are vulnerable now and how are they being treated? And where does everybody stand on the continuum of what do you say and what do you do? And, and what's your responsibility as a citizen of a republic? Yeah. And that, at every moment in the book, Roth examines it. He holds up Taylor. He holds yeah. up Alvin. He holds up Bengelsdorf. And he says, what did you do and when did you do it? Right. And why? And will the verdict on you be, will it be benign or, or will you be held in, in low regard? Taylor's example for Herman is so powerful that he ends up standing up and starts singing. Oh, the moonlight's fair tonight along the Wabash. From the fields there comes the breath of new mown hay. Through the he puts on that little show. It's oh, almost God. as if you're going to notice right me. Fine, notice me. Ostensibly, it's, all, it's, it's a love sonnet to his wife in a way, but he unabashedly sings it for the cafeteria. It's such a piece of Americanism. It's so rooted in American culture to sing on the banks of the Wabash. Yeah. This Jewish man standing there and delivering it over the shoulder of this belligerent anti-Semite. Right. That it's an absurdist moment of triumph. You know, and the only thing we added to that was we delivered his verdict that his son could go to Kentucky and experience whatever he was going to experience came on the heels of, yes. that, of that triumph. That Herman had carved enough confidence out of defeating that moment of anti-Semitism that he's willing to let his son yeah. take the same chance. We rarely get to see Herman be happy in this show because he's, he's such the burden of fear and anxiety and his family and everything else and his anger. And it's nice to see him be happy for a moment. And as you say, because he's had his faith restored, all right, his son can go to Kentucky. Maybe if there are people out there like Mr. Taylor, you'll be fine. The moment of connection to Mr. Taylor at the end, the quiet dignity that Taylor has now exhibited and the gratitude from Herman is one of the, my favorite moments in the whole in the whole sequence of, of events. It's, it's In the book, it made my heart go in my throat. Yeah. One last scene, we return to England where Alvin has come back from his mission that has gone very badly. And there's that ultimately heartbreaking shot of panning through the military hospital, arriving at Alvin in his bed with his bloody stump and his friend sits there, looks at him, and then gets up and leaves without letting him know she was ever there. There's this moment, which is relatively rare for this miniseries at this point, of happiness, of success, of almost joy, and we end Yeah, let on... me tell you who you're working for. You're working for Blood Deadline Productions. Yeah. We, we don't do happy. <laughs> we don't do happy. I, I'm familiar with your work, Mr. Simon. Uh, so we end with that, with Alvin crippled and alone. Hey, America, don't get too excited about what you just saw. Well, Darkness is coming. Well, yeah, I mean, Herman and the Levin family have fought their own little battle on the banks of the Potomac. Yes. And they've emerged victorious with a, um, a benign moment in a cafeteria. Yeah. Alvin has gone to war. Right. 
this harkens off of what June says to him earlier in the bedroom about how war is so terribly exciting. They're living through the blitz. Yes. It's a blackout. They've covered the windows. They're making love. You can hear the ambulances rolling around London. And he says, it's like limit on the edge of the knife. There's a romance that exists around the idea of war that doesn't actually right. survive the actuality of war. Alvin finds that out, as they say, the hard way. Bluntly. Yeah. And, and quickly. We've reached the end of part three of The Plot Against America with Alvin now deprived of part of his leg, lying unconscious in a bed. We'll leave him there for a while to recover. Thanks once again to David Simon for joining us to talk in depth about his work. Thank you, David. Thank you. We'll be back next week to discuss part four of The Plot Against America. That will air next Monday, 9 p.m. Eastern on HBO. My name is Peter Sagal. If you miss me in the week to come, you can always hear me on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. This podcast was produced by HBO in conjunction with Pineapple Street Studios. Our team at Pineapple Street Studios includes executive producers Jenna Weiss-Berman, Max Linsky, and Barry Finkel. This episode's lead producer is Emmanuel Hapsis. Our associate producer is Alexis Moore. Post-production and mixing is by Elliot Adler, and our editor is Maddie Sprung-Kaiser. You can always listen again to this podcast if you choose, or review and rate it via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, the HBO apps, anywhere else you might get your podcast, wherever you find them, on the street, in the sky, in your pocket. Find us, listen to us. We're grateful that you did. We'll see you next week. <laughs>